Hi, this is Mark Braven. I am a senior advisor with Kinexus, and I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar titled Putting Strategy Back in Strategy Deployment. We're happy to be joined by our presenter today, Jeff Hunter. I will um, introduce him in a minute after we cover um, some brief logistics and announcements about today's webinar. If you are watching and tweeting, um, you can find um, Jeff's Twitter handle, jhunter, at jhunterstrategy. So Jeff will be presenting for about 45 minutes. We will do Q&A at the end. I'll be moderating that. I encourage you to enter questions at any point during the webinar by using the GoToWebinar question panel. Um, we encourage you to uh, submit those questions um, along the way so we can help prioritize those instead of uh, bashing them up at the end, if you will. We will send out, uh, tomorrow you'll receive an email with a link to the recording and slides. And if you want to go ahead and uh, take a look at those now for the, the purposes of note taking, you can find a link under the handouts section of the GoToWebinar control panel, or you can find a link to SlideShare in the chat box. So with that, I'd like to introduce our presenter. Again, he is Jeff Hunter. Um, I've known Jeff for a couple of years now, um, crossing paths through uh, an organization called Catalysis, where we are both um, faculty members. Um, so I've seen uh, Jeff teach and, and speak a number of times. I, I know you're in for uh, a really insightful and thought-provoking um, hour here today. Um, so before doing the things that Jeff does now, he spent nearly 25 years as a senior vice president at ThetaCare, the health system in Wisconsin. He had responsibility for a number of staff functions, including strategy formulation and deployment. After retiring, he founded uh, his company, Jeff Hunter Strategy, LLC. Jeff has a special interest in facilitating strategic thinking for professional organizations, including healthcare, higher education, service organizations, and nonprofit community agencies. He is a faculty member for Catalysis, formerly the ThetaCare Center for Healthcare Value. And he is the author of a really excellent book. I really highly recommend his book, Patient-Centered Strategy, A Learning System for Better Care, which was published by Catalysis in 2018. Jeff received a BS in economics from the University of Detroit and his MA in Health Services Administration from the University of Wisconsin Madison. And with that, Jeff, I will hand it over to you. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, my point of view was informed um, from my experience uh, with ThetaCare, but also since ThetaCare and working with healthcare and non-healthcare organizations um, as I helped those organizations develop their capability to manage vision and purpose with strategic agility. I've also been heavily influenced by how innovators are using design thinking to disrupt the healthcare industry. So based on that experience, I formed the perspective that when we translated the Japanese term Hoshinkanri into English, originally it went into policy deployment, which didn't stick very well. And then we translated it into strategy deployment. We've lost the essence of strategy in that translation. The strategy is about making choices of what will make us unique in a way that is meaningful uh, to customers. And when I look particularly at the healthcare system and how we've applied it in healthcare, I've seen four um, 
over, I guess, recurring issues. Um, one is that the, uh, the lack of choice making um, creates uh, overburden. Um, all strategic plans have a tendency to look alike. Um, we're all going to improve safety, quality, customer satisfaction, employee engagement, financial performance. Uh, we're all going to grow even as we're doing population health management and reducing the demand for care. We're still uh, all going to grow. And when I see those uh, plans, they have a tendency to try to be all things to all people simultaneously, creating this overburden. And at the same time, they're not creating differentiation, meaningful differentiation from each other. And, uh, you know, when all industries pursue basically the same strategy, they wind up creating a commodity market. And when we feel like we're being judged on price in the most personal of what should be the most personal businesses, it's very frustrating to us um, that we feel like we're being uh, just, uh, judged on price. Now, um, when we choose our strategy, we have a challenge with effective catch ball um, in the organization. So we're creating confusion and then we, because we have these big, broad strategies that are going to last over a three to five year period of time, we um, have a challenge with rapid learning cycles. And when we don't learn quickly, we wind up kind of grinding to a halt and, and, uh, and create inertia. So if the shingle model teaches us that it's uh, you know mental models that create, if you will, principles and behaviors for leaders, and with those principles and behaviors, they create systems, and those systems have tools that get us results. What I've learned over time was that my old mental model created the old systems that I was used to and the old tools that I was using for a very long time. I mean, I used to actually, I was in charge of a management by objectives program that came out of the old mental model that we could really command and control inside and outside of the organization. Um, so the old mental models, uh, you know, viewed the organization as like a biologic being. The brain is going to think up all the answers and communicate it through the organization, through the nervous system. And everybody inside and outside of the organization is going to do as we predicted and uh, predetermined. So that led to this um, idea that I was supposed to be the problem solver. I mean, the, the, those who solved the biggest uh, problems the best um, became the leaders. And so my job was essentially to conduct business in my office, have people bring me their problems and, uh, and solve them for them. And, you know, there was plenty of demand to go around. Uh, so really, the problems that I was solving for all that time had to do with uh, what were we going to buy next and build next. Uh, because there was, you know, it was really keeping up with demand and keeping up with revenue, if you will. And so that generated an awful lot of uh, uh, strategies that, that were possible. And, and my job as a planner was to record all those and then uh, take them to the board and say, here's all the things we're going to do over the next three to five years, or what we think we might have to do over the next three to five years. And 
they number probably, oh, 200, 250 things. And the board would always say, well, wait a second, you can't do 250 things. You should be focused on three to five. So my job was to come up with three to five labels under which we would park all 250 things. And that was a result of creating planning as an event, something that we're going to do every three to five years. And even if we shorten it, uh, you know, to a one-year planning cycle, and we're looking out over three to five years, we're still trying to predict and predetermine all the things that we're going to do. So it's those old mental models that led to the old tools that just aren't effective anymore compared to the new competitors. So they requires, you know, to put strategy back in strategy deployment, it just requires new mental models, starting with uh, the nature of strategy. A strategy is about um, what we're going to do that's going to make us different. We have to choose a different set of activities. It's process-based. So there's a lot just in this one quote. It's strategy is about making choices. It's about creating differentiation. And it's about creating differentiation through process, through what we do differently from our competitors that creates value in the eyes of, of customers. And uh, it changes the new mental model um, about the nature of strategic planning, which is we are attempting to do things under conditions of uncertainty and competition. And if we believe at all in systems thinking that's been around since the 1980s, the moment that we do something, we've changed the game. We can't we, there is no such thing as perfect information. We can't completely con command and control um, our own organization, much less the environment around us. So it changes the nature of the organization and situation in which we're doing this planning, and it becomes a learning exercise. So we all really like the term learning organization. I used to think that a learning organization was an organization full of people who like to learn. I mean, I like to learn, don't you? Let's all get together and learn. But it's really about how the organization learns, um, what is creating value and what isn't. And so the nature of the learning organization is how the organization is able to develop those, uh, those knowledge management systems. And there's plenty of people who have said that if we can create that learning organization, uh, that we that actually becomes a, a form of strategic advantage, competitive advantage. So let me give kind of an example of, you know, how this really impacted me um, in my role. Um, when we look into, you know, design thinking and Steve Blank's notion of customer development, um, there's a story told there about a company called Webvan. Webvan was going to be very early in on the space of, of you ordering your groceries online and having them delivered to your doorstep. Webvan was very well capitalized, brought in a CEO from Accenture. Um, very smart people that use money to do cutting edge market research, trying to segment and size the market of people who would be willing to do this. And based on that sizing and that segmentation, uh, they leased hundreds of thousands of square feet of warehouse space and bought a whole fleet of vans like this one and opened their doors just to go bankrupt within a matter of months because they oversized the solution. And that's used in contrast with this idea of, through deep customer insights, develop hypothetical solutions, 
use a minimum viable product to try to test out those solutions and build them out through lean learning loops. So it took me a long time to really kind of understand and wrap my head around that, but I knew that I had learned something when I got a call from one of our rural administrators right before I left ThetaCare. And this rural administrator said, uh, I think that a reason that people aren't coming from a community south of me up to my hospital is because they have a transportation issue. So what would you think if I was to buy a van and trick it out and hire a driver and do the marketing and run this transportation service? Well, I know in my old mental model, my old system and tools, what we would have done was said, well, let's first do some market research. That's going to take us three months. And then, you know, this is a $100,000 idea. So if the research pans out, we're going to have to write up the business plan and take it through the whole chain of command. And that's going to take probably four months or so. So maybe in seven, eight months, you'll have your answer of whether or not you get your $100,000 or not. That's the old mental model and system and tools. Instead, all I had to say on the same phone call was, I don't know. That could be a good idea. What must be true for that to work? Because I'm pretty sure you can buy a van. I'll bet you can find a driver. And so obviously he said, well, the, you know, this hypothesis I have is dependent on whether or not people are going to use it. That's my most critical assumption where I really don't know the answer. So I just said, is there a fast, cheap way that you can test that assumption? And he said, yeah, actually, there's a transportation service down here where I could rent it on a per-use basis and see how people respond to it. And he did that experiment and found out that people didn't respond in the volumes that he hoped to. And so he pivoted and he was on to his next uh, idea, if you will. So he was able to avoid overbuilding, uh, avoid all that waste of time and, and move on. So I became intrigued by how in this mental model we could build a system. I had to get past my thinking that planning is something that we're going to do every once in a while. The, the fact that planning is a shared leadership capability and we've got to be able to manage vision and purpose with strategic agility, not every three to five years, not every year, but all the time. And I had to get over the idea of strategy being asset acquisition and start treating strategy as how we are going to engineer processes to create meaningful differentiation with our customers um, for sustainable advantage. So then I was looking for a system um, that's going to improve that focus, create that meaningful customer value, and accelerate organizational learning, try to overcome these recurrent problems that we're seeing in healthcare. I also found that organizations, uh, particularly healthcare organizations, are very complex. They're in a very turbulent environment. They're managing the expectations of many stakeholders. So when it comes to managing the work, there is a lot of things that people are expecting them to do. But if we could think through our work and maybe categorize it a bit, understanding that people are coming to work every day with jobs to do, trying to improve the process by which they do their jobs, that's operational effectiveness. And it may be incremental, it may be, you know, a real stepwise improvement, but we're taking a current standard of process and we're trying to make it better as, as we do it. And then we have a lot of um, 
what I like to call big rocks. These are big projects that are consuming cross-organizational resources, but they're not going to create differentiation. And I've never seen an industry that has as many big rocks as healthcare does, you know, with our electronic health records. And the idea of ICD-10 conversion. I mean, I don't know anybody who thinks that ICD-10 was uh, daily improvement, but everybody has to do it, so it's not going to create differentiation. So for all that work going on in the industry, we've got to carve out some time to um, be able to develop new ways that are going to create meaningful differentiation from competitors that's relevant to customers. Um, what I've always been told, the 80-20 rule of 80% of operational effectiveness and 20% strategy deployment. We've got to be able to carve out some time where we're going to be able to really gain deep insights into customer needs and be able to meet those needs in some unique fashion. Now, for all of those um, uh, types of work, it's still plan, do, study, adjust thinking that is common to any one of those types of work. And the beauty of PDSA thinking is that it's common language throughout a healthcare organization. It's what caregivers use with patients every day. It's what units of caregivers are using to be able to improve their process by which they deliver care. So if we can apply PDSA thinking to strategic planning at the executive level, we're going to have a common language. We're going to be able to connect with frontline caregivers where the value is really being created. So when we try to develop this mental model and the behaviors and a system for managing vision and purpose with strategic agility, we wind up with a strategic management system that includes, by applying plan, do, study, adjust thinking, let's understand where we are today. When we look at the gap between where we are and true north, where we want to be, let's define our strategic issue. Let's make some choices of how we think we can solve that strategic issue. Again, their choices. What are we going to focus on now and as opposed to defer for later? Once we've made those choices, understanding that they are hypothetical solutions, we cannot predict or predetermine the future. We have to ask ourselves what must be true for that strategy to work. And that what must be true when we identify our critical, most unknown assumptions that we're making where we don't really know the answer, that starts the strategy deployment process, building out these solutions using lean learning loops. Start with a minimum viable product, build it out in the most efficient, effective manner possible. Now, we're still planning here because we have to align um, and focus that work using catchball because people are really busy. Um, so we're trying to ask them to do something very different here than what they're normally doing. So we have to align that work. And then once we do all that, um, the next day, we think we're all set, but the next day, something's going to fall from the sky. So how do we manage the new ideas? Because we like new ideas. How are we going to manage those ideas? How are we going to accelerate our learning so that this becomes a continuous, virtuous loop, if you will, of, of learning? So let's uh, you know, take this a step at a time by understanding the situation. Now, in the old way, uh, you know, what I was taught, I, you know, really, um, all these 
the, all these variables were viewed as being kind of independent of each other. They were predictable. They were controllable. They were stable. But if we believe in systems thinking, then everything is interdependent. It, we can't predict everything. We can't control everything. And these elements are very, very dynamic. So in a learning organization, the point is our perspective on our market position has got to be current. It's got to be comprehensive, but most importantly, it's got to be shared if we're going to have a learning organization. So that starts with deep understanding of our customers. And the tools that our new entrants are using, our competitors are using, start with, uh, you know, the tools with design thinking. That idea of the convergence of the desirability that customers have the feasibility, can we actually produce it? But then the viability, can we produce it in a sustainable business model? Again, think back to Webvan as an example. It's that nexus of, of these three elements that, that potentially provide the solution. It requires different ways of doing customer research. It requires the anthropologic, the ethnographic approaches to doing uh, market research. Um, that are new. Um, it supplements our traditional way of doing res, uh, market research that we've thought about. But a lot of this knowledge does reside at the front lines. And so when we're trying to deeply understand customer needs, it's the front lines that have a lot of uh, information and a lot of ability to test out um, our solutions on customers because they know what the customers need and where the pain points are. Another tool that can really help when it comes to understanding ourselves is understanding our own current business model. Um, and this is where I really like the strategizer business model canvas. It helps us think through on the right-hand side what it is that we do that makes us unique and generates revenue. And on the left-hand side, what it takes for us to do that and how it impacts our cost structure, because we want the right-hand side to be able to you know, exceed the left-hand side, if you will. So actually, when we apply design thinking to this, again, we find that on the right-hand side, we are trying to understand desirability and what makes us unique in the eyes of customers, the feasibility on the left-hand side of being able to produce it for them, but then when we match the bottom, is are we developing a, a uh, you know a business model, a viable business model that's going to work? So this is a really helpful tool for understanding us. It's also a great tool for understanding our competitors and uh, their business models. And so that gives us a pretty good idea of our transactional environment. But when we get outside the transactional environment, a great tool for understanding that is Porter's Five Forces Analysis. When we apply Porter's Five Forces Analysis, it gets us outside of our own business model and it looks at, like, at the business models of new entrants. It looks at the bargaining power of suppliers and customers. It really gets us outside that transactional environment and starts looking at the context in which we're trying to create strategy. And then when we look out even farther, then we can use pestle analysis or steeple analysis to try to understand what's going on in the environment that is impacting our industry 
and you know creating the business models that um, and the the really new business models that are out there. Now the point here again is for this perspective to be current, for it to be comprehensive, and for it to be shared. Because when you believe in systems thinking, you have to believe in how dynamic this environment is as you're crafting strategy. Then when we look at where we are today compared again to where we want to be, then we have to define that strategic issue. And in strategic, you know, in, in idealized design, if you will, in plan, do, study, adjust thinking, we're always looking at where we are today, where we want to be, and if we can get ourselves from where we are to the next target state, stabilize it and standardize it, then that can become our new current state. Then once again, we look, where did the ideal state shift? Let's focus again on true north, on that ideal state, on vision and purpose and what winning looks like, and ask ourselves, how do we get to that next target state? So we're seeing the gap between where we are and where we're trying to get to. We're trying to do this step by step. Sometimes the strategic issue has to do with growth. And so there's a, again, another paradigm or a tool for how to think about growth. But when we look at the nature of the strategic issue, especially in healthcare organizations, we have to ask ourselves frequently, with the nature of the strategic issue, to what degree do it, does it require innovation? I'm often asked this question, and I drew a lot from insight from Matthew Mace. Uh, Matt has taught me a lot. Um, and Matthew is constantly um, helping organizations with innovative thinking. So his definition of when innovation is required to solve a strategic issue is one that's going to require this more than incremental thinking. We really don't know what the solution, really what the nature of the problem or opportunity is, so we have to innovate our way there. So once we understand the nature of the strategic issue, that's where we have to make some choices of what to try to solve for now and what to defer. Once again, this is where I've learned a lot from um, Roger Martin and Matt May uh, uh, was able to uh, work a lot with Roger Martin and develop um, very visual methods for understanding and generating solutions uh, for strategic issues. Um, this integrated uh, cascade of, of choices, it's the five dimensions of a strategy. Again, the strategy is a hypothesis. We believe that we've come up with an idea of how, what winning would look like, where we need to win, how we're going to win, and what capabilities and management systems we're going to need in order to create that competitive advantage in our chosen spaces so that we can win. So you see the arrows going in both directions because this is the iterative development of a hypothetical solution. Let me give an example here. Um, we had a strategic issue that we needed to solve about how we were going to create a unique solution for a target audience that we had. Um, now, where we chose to win was in actually our sickest patients, those who were having a very difficult time navigating a complex system of care, um, very serious cardiac patients, cancer patients. 
And so we wound up choosing very narrow segments. We wound up choosing breast cancer patients as a very narrow segment, figuring that if we could win there, then imagine what we could learn and be able to spread to other audiences. And so we figured that our source of competitive advantage, how we would win, would be access and speed of diagnosis and the experience that the customer had. And so the capabilities and management systems we had, we had to get past being a transactional volume-based organization to developing very deep customer insights. So this hypothetical solution that we developed, it completely had it completely changed the business model, had profound implications on the business model. So we had to ask ourselves, what must be true about customers' reactions, regardless of how much market research we had done? You know, what was true about competitor behavior, what they were going to, how they were going to respond the moment that we did something? Our own ability to execute, could we get from being a transactional-based organization, one with deep customer insights? Would we be able to rely on our partners? And what about the uh, industry as a whole? For an example of this, what our most critical uncertainty was, could we get our independent physician partners to join us in this journey? Could we create that kind of stickiness that was going to deliver a real value for our customers? So once we came up with this hypothetical strategy, we had to, and what must be true, that's where we started by uh, um, using a minimum viable product, the quickest, fastest, um, cheapest tests of proof that we could develop. And this is where we learned a lot from design thinking, where we try to get deeper customer insights. We use the minimum viable product, built out our solutions um, by using, again, I like, uh, learned a lot from Matt May, what's the biggest worry? What do we need to learn and how can we test this? What is the measure of proof? And then when we conduct these experiments, what did we learn? Um, you know, should we pivot or persevere? What are we going to try next? Now, the advantage to thinking this way in strategy deployment is that we stop arguing about who is right. We start trying to learn what is right from by letting the customer tell us. And so when we start testing these hypotheses, that's where we become a learning organization, not an organization that's just based on power and who can argue the loudest. Now, we're not done yet with the planning function because we have to take those um, proposed solutions and we've got to align it and focus it with people who are already very busy. And we use Catchball to be able to create that kind of alignment. And with credit to my friends from the Institute for Enterprise Excellence, there's a couple of ways to try to do strategy deployment. And we wanna be doing the one on the left where we're helping, enabling, coaching people, not simply dumping on them on the right. Um, these folks have operational effectiveness going on. They've got big rocks going on and now we're asking them to participate in strategy deployment. Now there's two aspects, if you will, two dimensions of strategy deployment. One's a mechanical dimension, and then the other's a very human dimension. In the mechanical dimension, think of your strategy again. It's an A3. It's a it's plan, do, study, adjust. It's You've generated some countermeasures. Those countermeasures are your breakthrough initiatives. Now, in the mechanical dimension of catchball, what I found is a very helpful tool, again, 
is the basic X matrix. Now, I've seen a lot of people have negative reactions to an X matrix. That's because, I, and I did too when it was first introduced to me, they can look very complex. Um, they can look, um, you know, very daunting. So I've had to strip it down to the chassis. In the very most basic X matrix tool, you're asking, if I identify these priorities, which are going to generate these initiatives, and those initiatives are going to consume these resources, am I going to hit the metrics that are desired? So I, you can reverse engineer your logic and say, if I devote these resources to these initiatives, I'm going to be able to solve for my most critical priorities and hit the metrics that are desired. And, you know, it's, it's a chassis of, of the X matrix. It's the most simple way of being able to see the work. But if we can see the work, then we can start to fill it with our breakthrough initiatives. We know that that's going to generate a lot of uh, work for organizations. That's going to consume some resources. We're asking people to participate in that. We're asking our operating units to participate in that. Well, our operating units, they've already got a business plan. They already have priorities that they're working on. So when we pour in our priorities into their X matrix and they've got their own priorities, that once again is generating a whole lot of initiatives that are going to consume a lot of uh, resources. So that's where we've got to have this dialogue. That's where we've got to have catch ball. And this can work. I remember in our organization at ThetaCare, if you take this down to one more level, our information technology function, they had their own X matrix, they had their own business plan, they were trying to radically redesign their work to become more efficient and more effective. Well, they were able to show that what everybody was pouring into their X matrix was going to uh, produce 114 brand new initiatives um, out to the right hand side there. Brand new initiatives, not ongoing work, brand new initiatives. Well, you know IT folks, they're very good project planners. They know how to estimate resources. So they said, we can get this work done if we have 60 more people and I think 20 million more dollars in consulting uh, dollars. Um, so we couldn't do that through the dialogue process. We did scale back the number of initiatives, and we did add resources to information technology. So we, it's not like they didn't still feel overburdened. I'm sure everyone still feels overburdened, but we were able to reduce the overburden and increase focus by the use of these tools. So that's the mechanical side. When we look at the people side of Catchball, Catchball is all about dialogue. Um, and this is the hard part, if you really will. Because, you know, organizations, especially healthcare organizations, uh, nurture autonomy. Professional autonomy is very important. A lot of people have veto power over what's going to go on. And compared to some other industries, we're really not trained to be able to have this kind of dialogue. We don't really have the systems for this dialogue. And frankly, in the past, maybe the stakes weren't all that high because we still were able to generate all this work and, and some things got done, some things didn't, and it didn't really seem to matter because when you got plenty of demand and plenty of revenue, you're able to, you know, get past this and, and live for another day. But I think that these days when uh, time and money is precious, 
that we've got to be able to learn how are we going to align these precious resources so that we can increase our learning, increase our throughput in the strategic management system. So we have to learn how to have these dialogic conversations. And when we do this, we start with setting the frame. When we're talking to someone, here is what I think we're trying to do and why it is so important. You know, what kind of support might you expect and what kind of constraints are you going to be operating under? And then we have to allow people to be able to, you know, express their perspective back to us. And they've got to be able to advocate for what they believe. And then this, once again, this becomes a circle because we also then get to ask our questions. And through it's through this dialogic process that we build the muscle of coaching. And we're coaching for improvement, we're coaching for development. And so this is plan, do, study, adjust thinking again. This is how we coach for improvement. This is how we coach for development. We're building that same muscle in strategic planning that we use in development, that we use for improvement. Now, in my experience, this catch ball works best when we do have, you know, a3 thinking as a communication tool, which once again, we're generating hypothetical solutions. Help me test the solution in the most economical and effective manner. It works best when we have visual management so that we can see the work that we're trying to manage here. Project management thinking really helps estimate the amount and sequence of resources. And then just the principles and um, a, a practice of effective dialogue um, really um, uh, helps in that, in that process. So managing the flow of work then, again, we've now determined that here's what we wanna do, but the next thing that's gonna happen is that the next day we're gonna have new ideas fall from the sky and we want them, we wanna encourage new ideas. So the question is, how can we manage um, that inbound work, if you will, so that we maintain focus, we accelerate our learning cycles, we increase the throughput of strategic ideas through this process? Well, once again, that starts with seeing the work that we are, that we've got in progress. I've got just a rudimentary X matrix there as a visual management tool, but we need to be able to see the work that we already have in progress and the resources that are devoted to that work. Now, as new ideas flow, and again, we want new ideas, we're just asking ourselves, okay, what gap are we trying to close? Why is that gap important now? And then we've got to have some sort of evaluation process. We used to have like a 16-page business planning form. Well, people don't have generally have enough information at that time because many of their ideas need to be explored. So we'll use like a proposal A3. And again, the A3 is plan, do, study, adjust thinking. What gap are we trying to close? Why do we think the gap exists? What do we think will close the gap? What experiments might we run? What kind of resources might be required for those experiments? What kind of benefit do we think we're going to get out of this? And we can't throw everything, all the good ideas directly in the working process because we may not have capacity. 
So we may need some kind of a weight work board came out of terminology came out of industry. The weight side is, okay, we think this is a great example, but we need some more inputs to get freed up. Um, and so we'll put it on that side of the board. The work side of the weight work board just says, okay, we've got everything we need. We're just waiting for capacity. Before we put it into capacity, what I've drawn there is just an impact difficulty chart. Gives us the ability to pick off the ones that we think have the most promise. My, what I'm suggesting here is that it's this kind of a visual management system that enables us to get all the ideas on the table so that we can see them and manage them rather than managing them, you know, backroom conversations and the old power politics of, you know, getting the resources I need. Let's put the information on the table. Let's manage it so that with transparency so that we know um, uh, what we're trying to accomplish and we remain focused on the critical few so that, again, we can increase the throughput of ideas through this entire system. Now, when we've got that visual management system, then we're and we're studying the work that we've got in process, we're asking ourselves, you know, what did we expect to happen? What actually happened? What did we learn? What are we going to try next? And are there any barriers we can remove? The basic kata questions um, that, you know, for at, at even, you know, just the most basic form of improvement. It is, again, scalable. This can work um, in, in strategy formulation, strategy deployment. Takes the emotion out of the process and gets everybody thinking positively about what we can accomplish here. So just to wrap up here, we can see that a strategic management system that is based on a new mental model, but still based on plan, do, study, adjust thinking, that this system can work. It becomes an iterative process of managing vision and purpose with strategic agility. It does require new mental models. It requires new executive behaviors as they coach for problem solving. But the benefits of using this system over the old event-based approach is that it increases the throughput of strategic ideas and we stop arguing about who's right. We let the customer tell us what is right. That system has tools that are very helpful in sequence in managing through that. What it gives us is the ability to get to what we all talk about we want, this culture of experimentation. We want to be able to cultivate innovation so that we can stay relevant in this very turbulent market. It gives us the ability to manage vision and purpose with strategic agility, and we can become a learning organization. That's why we call it patient-centered strategy and why it's a learning system for better care. So at this point, I'm going to turn it back to Mark. Jeff, thank you for your presentation. Um, we'll do a few announcements here. Encourage people to continue uh, submitting questions. We've got a good amount of time here available to do that. Uh, I want to tell you about some upcoming webinars. You can register 
for, I don't think you can register. Well, you can register for these three right now at kindexus.com slash webinars. And then there's one other, well, I'll give you uh, a few teasers at the end. October 1st is going to be episode number 21 of Ask Us Every Anything. Um, it could be Ask Us Everything. Sorry for misspeaking there. Ask Us Anything. Uh, now, Jeff is not Jeff Hunter. Um, Jeff, I don't want you to think I was putting you on the spot here. Um, Ask Us Anything is normally uh, myself and Dr. Greg Jacobson, the CEO and co-founder of Kinexus. Uh, he's unavailable. It's tough to find dates on our schedules. And so our VP of sales, Jeff Roussel, is going to come on with me. So if you have questions about continuous improvement, about Kinexus, if you have questions about sales and dealing with salespeople, um, Jeff is a good one to ask those questions to. He's a good guy. I'm glad he's going to be joining us there on October 1st. That's a 30-minute uh, video Q&A session that we do. People can submit questions for us in advance. On October 9th, uh, we have something we call our Kinexus Q3 updates. This is more focused for uh, Kinexus customers or people who are interested in becoming Kinexus software company uh, customers. Um, our team will show you some of the latest and greatest in our software in more of a demo webinar format. That's on October 9th. October 25th is another episode of what we call the Banna Rippy Show. Matt Banna and Ryan Rippy from our team in Austin um, have been doing these uh, really fun, engaging um, sessions, uh, webinars together. A lot of it's focused on uh, our customers and questions they have about our software and making the most of it. Um, that is coming up again uh, as part of the regular series, uh, October 25th. And then there's two more that I'll mention that we don't have registration open for yet. I'm going to be doing a presentation uh, webinar on uh, October 31st. We're gonna give it kind of a Halloween flavor talking about uh, why metrics and statistics shouldn't be scary. Um, so hopefully uh, we can um, give you some tips that help uh, prevent scaring people off. That's coming up on October 31st. And then uh, the last week in November, uh, one of our customers from a hospital system in Ohio uh, we'll be doing a webinar about their improvement journey. So um, we're going to continue this ongoing series, and we hope you look forward to that. Uh, but moving on, a couple of the last announcements. Um, there are other resources available. You can find our webinar library, Continuous Improvement Webinars On Demand. There is a link to that on the right-hand side of kinexus.com slash webinars, uh, dozens of webinars over the past couple of years on all sorts of topics. We hope you will go check those out. And then you can also check out our blog by going to blog.kinexus.com. Um, there, there are two tabs on the blog. One is what we call our improvement blog, which is for the general public and a broader community, if you will. And then we have a customer blog, which is about uh, new, new feature announcements and things like that that are of particular interest to our Kinexus customers. And we also have our podcast, kinexus.com slash podcast. The audio of this webinar will be posted there if you want to revisit it sometime when you're uh, in the car, on a plane, out for a jog. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast series through iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, I guess is what they call it now, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, most of the places where you can normally find podcasts. And with that, we will... Go into Q&A mode, you can see, uh, again, Jeff's Twitter handle and email address there. Uh, his website is jeffhunterstrategy.com. And again, I want to mention, 
uh, his excellent book, uh, Patient-Centered Strategy, which you can, you can find out more on his website. You can find it on Amazon and the uh, Catalysis website. Um, so questions, Jeff. Um, our hospital seems built on the need to provide all care to all people. Um, so if that's the case, how can we be truly differentiated? Does that mean we need to consider um, the idea of not providing some services? What are your thoughts? Well, I can certainly empathize with that because we were one of those organizations. A, a couple of things that, that can help. One is there's this idea of where must we win right now versus where do we play to play? So understanding that we are very complex organizations that have a lot of stakeholders and a lot of customers, there still are places where we can maintain our current performance, if you will, watch indicators, where there are others where we really need um, uh, to break through. And so much like other, you know, plan, do, study, adjust thinking, it's, it's where do we maintain where we are versus where do we need to break through? Now, there are some situations, and we had to go through them, and where there were some services that we had to make some very difficult choices on. And, and I know that those are hard, but we did have to, um, as we were trying to get to our, our, you know, closer to our ideal state, there were some uh, services that we actually needed. You know, and it wasn't so much getting out of them and, and just, you know, letting them go. We actually partnered with other organizations. We got out of inpatient pediatrics, but we partnered, we partnered with the Children's Hospital to do it. Um, so examples like that. It's kind of a related question when it comes to the idea of differentiating and winning compared to other industries, let's say the, the auto industry, uh, where winning might imply that there are some losers, relatively speaking, in the market. Do you find some hospitals are uncomfortable with the idea of winning, or is it possible for all of the hospitals in the market to win in a way that serves our community? Well, the, do some uh, is there a challenge with the language? Um, I do find it in some places, but not where I would have expected it. I do a lot of work with organizations in some other countries in which they have, you know, nationalized healthcare systems. But the idea of being unique, and, and that's what's important here. It's what makes us so unique that customers really value us and payers really value us. So people would not want to see us fail. People would want to see us succeed. So for me, that's what winning looks like. But it does mean winning with customers. It, so that idea, you know, in, in Canadian hospitals, Canadian hospitals have not struggled with this idea of what it takes for them to be unique so that they win with funders, if you will. Even hospitals in the public system of South Africa, where I did this workshop, uh, they got right on it about what would winning look like with customers? How can they create this really unique value for patients where everyone says, let's fund it? I do a lot of work with community agencies. And in the case of each community agency, the question is, what makes this agency so unique that funders are going to want to fund it? Rather than just, you know, there are so many agencies where all their strategic plan is, is this is what I do, now please give me money. So in hospitals, 
you know, we do have to figure out what does winning look like with customers. In our country, we frequently have to think about with competitors, but I'm always focused on winning with customers. If I can win with customers, then the competitors will, you know, they have to figure out what they're going to do. I'm not trying to beat a competitor. I'm trying to win with customers. Mm, that's that's a great comparison there. And, and, and just building on that a little bit, let, let me you know, can, uh, just throw a, a different question on there. I think it's interesting sometimes when you see different locations within a large multi-site health system basically competing with each other. Like I think of the scenario of you know, a hospital with five emergency departments and five kind of equal hospitals in a metropolitan area. And you know, kind of pose the question of, you know, are you a collection of hospitals or are you a system? I asked what would happen if hospital A had all its beds full and patients were really stacked up in hospital A's emergency department where hospital B 20 minutes away maybe had lots of beds available. Like at what point do you start steering uh, patients who are capable of saying, well, you know, you'd wait less if you go to the emergency room down the road at hospital B, or even the idea of transferring a patient who is, again, like medically capable and able of being transported. Like, would you consider, you know, thinking of the hospital as more of a network of flows? And the answer I got was, well, hospital A doesn't want to lose the revenue. And I think, well, that, that's not, that's by definition not really a system, is it? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on something like that? Well, you, you're right. It, it, it really depends a lot on the incentives that occur within that organization. Mm -hmm. And we've had a tendency to apply the term system when we're actually just a conglomerate of, of enterprises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I would suggest that we had to do a lot of that in theta care. And again, those are very difficult discussions. I understand how they're very difficult yeah. discussions. And, and it is, it can be a challenge to isolate certain services because we are kind of used to being all things to all people and we see interdependencies, sometimes where interdependencies don't actually exist. But I would suggest that, you know, if you look at the larger systems um, uh, right now in this country, they are moving from a holding company model to an operating company model. And so they are taking on those very difficult decisions because they've decided that if they're really going to be competitive in the future, they're going to have to deliver better, better value at the bedside, and they got to get the back office waste out, and that's how they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, you, you're, I think that's right on that. You know, people are just doing what the incentives drive them to do. Hospital A is being rewarded for their own independent P&L versus. Um, being a good part of a, of, of, of a system. Um, I have some other questions here. Um, how do we decide what true north is? Um, you use an example of a lot of hospitals having the same strategy. Is that because true north tends to be the same for different hospitals? That's a really good observation, I think. Um, I'm working with an organization now that is challenging that. Uh, now, in the book, I also used an example of, of it, it wasn't um, uh, just safety, quality, customer satisfaction, and, and, and employee engagement, and, and, and those uh, factors. When, when at ThetaCare, we got into why do we exist, and how are we going to really break through? We came up with what we called owner's expectations, and this was a board-driven discussion. 
about what is our mission and how are we going to know if we are accomplishing our mission. So in our case, our, those metrics were different from operational metrics, if you will. And again, I, I use that example in the book. But I'm also working with another um, organization right now, a healthcare organization, that is really getting beyond that. They're really asking themselves this question of meaningful. If we are going to really be relevant and meaningful as a not-for-profit organization in this community, what does that mean? And that's how they're trying to define true north. And it's beyond the safety, it's beyond the traditional metrics. Mm-hmm. Once again, um, it's prompted by their idea that they have to break through, they have to be different. So they're asking themselves, what would be different? How would we know if we're different? Yeah. Um, what was the phrase you used talking about data care? It was what expectations? Well, the board actually called them owner's expectations because those board members saw themselves as representing the community, and it was the community that owned Fedacare. Uh Owner's expectations. Okay. Yeah, they were owner's expectations, okay. but it was the community as owners. Okay, I, I, I misheard it as owner. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. And interestingly, Financial performance was one of the four, but it was the fourth of the four um, uh, sets of metrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I misheard you. I thought you said onerous expectations as opposed to the owner, <laughs> owner's expectations. So, so we tried um, to make them not dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll go ahead and thank everyone for attending today. I want to thank Jeff Hunter. Uh, for presenting. I want to thank everybody who registered and attended and asked questions. Again, we'll be sending follow-up information with the recording and links within the day or so, and we hope you'll join us uh, for future Kinexus webinars. On behalf of Jeff Hunter and the entire team at Kinexus, I want to thank you uh, for joining us here today.